Hi and welcome to the Delta Dialogue. Uh, in this episode, we'll talk about open data, uh, open medical data and AI from above and beyond and explore its implications to our world. On the episode of our uh, series on open me- medical data, we will get more insights on open medical data and AI. I'm your host, Emir Mustafa. I am joined today by my co-host and commentator, David Wood, and our guest speaker, Rohitashwa Agrawal. He's a physician who holds a fellowship in digital health innovations at Harvard Medical School. He's passionate about access to quality healthcare and expressing opinions on impactful technologies. Besides clinical medicine, he has worked in consulting, nonprofit, academia, and government across the U.S., India, and Africa at different levels. The concept of the metaverse uh, has gained a lot of attention uh, recently as well. Uh, How do you see the metaverse? I mean, you mentioned Google Class, which failed, okay, but we have a lot of other um, AR, VR stuff also uh, going around. Uh, how do you see the metaverse transforming uh, healthcare and in yeah R and and what are some specific uh, examples of its potential applications in the field? Yes, uh, so metaverse is a very interesting innovation. I mean, it uh, if you just go back a year, it was so promising that Facebook changed its name to Meta, and now we saw how the stock tanked and how it didn't pay a pan out to the level that it was expected. But then again, uh, maybe it's it was ahead of its time, and def- definitely there is a lot of uh, opportunities to leverage that kind of innovation to speak about healthcare. There can be potential uses in the form of medical education, where uh, you can teach medical students. So in my days, we used to have real cadavers, and then there were few people who would, you know. Uh, cut their nerves and they see everything, the anatomical parts. But if you have a metaverse, you can hold it, you can to see the three-dimensional view, you can carry it with you, you can have your own personalized kind of a 3D uh, cadaver to you know learn from. Uh, surgeons can learn to do operations and surgeries, so they can learn the nuanced surgeries which needs a lot of fine uh, anatomical uh, awareness. So that's one utilization. Second could be something around rehabilitation, especially for uh, mental health or let's say PTSD or something like that, where there uh, you can give a calming, soothing environment and perception for the patient, and then that can help the healing process. Uh, third could be telemedicine. So telemedicine right now is very 2D, two-dimensional, where you might have a screen in front of you and you're just speaking. To the doctor how about a doctor being there in your living room and the person might might feel much more connected they might be able to communicate better uh, so there are many various uses of metaverse uh, in different domains yeah but we haven't seen anything going mainstream but uh, i believe as we would improve the so right now the main reason for in my opinion or what i've read uh, the metaverse is still not that real. It's still like a gaming, gaming kind of a uh, gaming kind of fidelity. So it still doesn't give that feeling of realness. Uh, as we would increase the computing capacity, and maybe AI might also help in the processing uh, domain. Maybe we'll see a much more realistic appearance, a much more realistic uh, feeling of that metaverse, and that might, you know, could be a inflection point for the metaverse to become much more mainstream. 
Have you had a chance to weigh up the new product released by Apple, their Vision Pro? They don't call it Apple Glasses, they call it Vision Pro. They don't talk about a metaverse, they talk about spatial computing. And my goodness, it's expensive. But then again, the iPhone started off as an extremely expensive device. Apple have been delaying this product release for year after year until they feel it's good enough. Have you had a chance to assess whether this is just big company hype as well, or maybe it really will revolutionize uh, all aspects of medical and medicine and healthcare? That's a very great example that you brought. Uh, so I was uh, watching the, I mean, I've seen some videos and I've seen the release of it and it seems to be very promising. Uh, but then again, uh, I'm of opinion, health tech is a, healthcare itself is a very tricky domain. Things that look good in other industries, people have tried to copy and paste and it never works. Uh, I'm not saying it will not work, but uh, I am. I will be much more kind of a critical to see how it works and i would be really uh, really interested to know what would be the you know what would be the use cases uh, i can see there could be some use case in home healthcare because it seems like apple is focusing on giving a kind of a perceptions of a person sitting in a home so probably this could have some use case for elderly population where they might be, you know, they might be lonely or they might be sitting at a home. They might have a lot of um, anxiety or all those kind of depression kind of a, uh, illness. Maybe Apple Pro might give them some perception of much more changed reality and that might impact their health, comes, health outcomes. Uh, but how it would pan out, I don't know. But it's very interesting as of now. At, at this level, uh, this seems like a very in interesting jump beyond that typical VR set, VR headset or uh, virtual reality headset where it looks like a box and then for someone from looking from outside, it looks like someone is in their own domain, in their own world. But because Vision Pro will give you that view of your eyes as well so you can see through, uh, that's very interesting in which it kind of makes it much more real and at the same time it kind of blurs that boundary between the virtual world and the real world because you can see through so you can see the real world at the same time you have a virtual world as well so there's definitely very interesting that's a very interesting innovation let's see how it pans out but yeah it's very expensive to to make it a very mainstream or to make it to have a big impact the price either has to come down or the use case has to be very interesting so I'm hearing cautious optimism, and perhaps we should have another interview, the three of us, in a year's time, and we will have more evidence by that stage on lots of the topics we've been discussing indeed. I'm moving on to digital pathology, uh, which you wrote in another article. As, uh, in, in the context of digital pathology, uh, you mentioned India's potential to become a world leader. Uh, could you explain how digitization and automation can address the shortage of uh, specialized medical professionals, uh, especially in rural areas, and contribute uh, to more efficient uh, healthcare delivery? Yep. Uh, thank you for the question. So in, so in pathology itself, as a specialty, is going through a big change. It's almost akin to what radiology was going through when it went from analog films, uh, if you guys remember, we used to have X-ray films, CT scan films, and now everything is digital. Same thing is happening with pathology where they used to make these glass slides and they will look under the microscope. 
Now there are digital microscopes and now it's going even beyond where uh, these microscopes, uh, digital microscopes will take the image of that slide and then it will project with a high diff fidelity and then you can run a lot of uh, AI algorithms on that as well. So in India, there is definitely a lot of uh, problems. Uh, there is lack of pathologists. There are pockets of excellence in metros, so Delhi, Mumbai, Bangalore, Kolkata, U Chennai, all major hubs of the country will have concentration of pathologists, concentration of every specialist, in fact. So in this case, uh, there is a big chunk of population, almost 60% of India's population lives in still in the rural area. So definitely they are devoid of that kind of service that they can avail. But with the advent of 5G and uh, with the advent of uh, digital pathologies, it's possible that some there is a small spoke site at these rural areas, they can make those glass slides, they can take that tissue, and then they can relay that digital information, digital image uh, using data navigation. And these pocket of excellence, they have this concentration of super specialists, and they can look at those slides and can opine on it. So it's more around telepathology. So they can provide that access to that uh, insights on those pathology sitting in their own uh, center of excellence. And that person in the rural area will benefit from that without even have to travel to that city, lose their uh, a wage and all those things. The second thing is once you digitize that data at a macro level, you would have data from so many parts of the world, so many parts of the country. So you will, you will be able to map out the problems. You will be able to do a lot of analysis on that data once it gets digitized. Right now it's not digitized. So uh, you just send one specimen, the pathologist will look at it and then uh, he will opine and then that's, that's it. There is no central repository of image that's being captured. But digital uh, pathology can help to create that central repository where a lot of analysis can be done at a macro level, at a micro level, at a provincial level. You can go down to the community level. So you can start seeing, let's say, for example, if there is a uh, epidemic of any type of particular cancer because the groundwater was got polluted or something like that. And you see some cert, uh, certain number of cases popping up from that particular zip code or pin code uh, much more frequently as compared to any other part of the uh, state. So now you know that there is a problem. At least you know there is a problem, right? So that can be done if you have that kind of a granular data which is in digital format. And third element is you have lack of pathologists and then you cannot train pathologists sitting in your brick and mortar hospitals and center of excellence. They have a physical capacity. They have physical limitations. But what if you can train certain elements of pathology to rural physicians, rural clinicians, rural healthcare workers? They can learn certain techniques. So at least you can offshore that, offside that workload of that particular element of pathology speciality. So basically you are increasing the support system for your pathology reporting and increasing the system uh, capacity to accommodate more number of patients, digitizing those data points and then developing those granular insights that would be relevant for the community, for the scarce resource allocation that happens at the provisional level. And also to give a kind of a macro level of what's happening in India, like what's happening, what kind of conditions are coming out where it is there so it's any data will is a, almost always a good data unless uh, you are capturing it in a without any you know noise in it so pathology mm -hmm. is 
is a digital pathology that step in that direction where it can lay the foundation for digitization of that element of that speciality on which you can innovate in the form of AI ML also. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And and one of the topics that I wanted to ask also about digital pathology is that you know you've mentioned um, the advancements and 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 the benefits um, of of this digitization in healthcare. Um, do you? I mean, could you mention any of the um, of, of 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 how it has been uh, accelerated, uh, especially by the pandemic? Because I, I I know that that was a major influence also, uh, or like more as in a push uh, to increase digitization. Um, um, could you mention some of these uh, advancements? Uh, that are that have been pushed uh, by the pandemic itself. So the first thing uh, we all know, we became aware of called Zoom calls. Zoom call became the way we live now. So telemedicine, telehealth, you can uh, consider that as a fruit of COVID because uh, people were staying at their home and they wanted to get that care. So telemedicine is the first big impact that kind of mainstreamed that uh, kind of a care that can be delivered remotely. So that was the first and the biggest visible impact that we can talk about. Uh, the second one is there was a need to do that. So regulation was not moving out of choice, but out of compulsion. Regulation was at that. Uh, telemedicine was possible many years ago as well, right? Like we used to do uh, we Google calls and all uh, so many video calls options we already had, right? WhatsApp call and all those things, but we never used for healthcare. Now at the COVID, then the regulations have to move in that direction where they allow to do it. They allowed the reimbursement for it. So that was the point where regulatory inertia got disrupt, disrupted and then things moved. So that's, that makes a case that things can be moved. I mean, things can be moved in a regulated domain as well, but we don't have to wait for a pandemic to do that. Why don't we do it much more voluntarily? And the third one was, uh, there was this nuance, there was this notion that patients will not be sharing the data over this kind of mechanism, which is not exactly super safe or not been tested before. We saw that in the COVID time, people were willing to share the data. They were willing to talk to the physician over a call, over telemedicine. So this notion that uh, this uh, healthcare data is sacrosanct, uh, it cannot be shared over a digital because it can be hacked or it can be, you know, uh, can be misused. But I believe life is more important than the data because if there is no life, there is no data. What you will do with that data if the person dies just to save that he doesn't want to, you know, share the data. That's the, the completely different opinion from a patient. Patient wants to get the care fast, quick, most precise, most tailored to his needs, his or her needs. And as soon as possible, he doesn't want to wait. So if it needs that you have to share data, let's say over not so uh, secure channel, not so encrypted channel, I believe patients will be open to that. It's our, uh, it's kind of a old school thinking where we believe because it's not safe, patient will not be willing to share it. Uh, but we saw in the COVID that we, people are much more willing to accept innovation if we provide them. And of course, there was this uh, movement away from providing care within brick and mortar. 
there was this openness from i saw i saw i personally myself seen that physicians were much more now welcoming to talk about ai they are much more wel- uh, welcoming or are more curious to learn what's happening in the health tech domain uh, i think that's the product of covid when they had to move and then they realized that if they will not move uh, either they will be replaced by someone who is moving fast yeah and uh yeah the, exactly and these these are uh i mean great uh innovations as well as but then in your view um what are some of uh, these the yeah the more boring let's say innovations in healthcare that uh, often go unnoticed but have the potential for significant impact uh, so in healthcare the one of the most hated innovation is ehr electronic health record system uh, you i mean that's been my experience i have not found a single doctor who is a fan of it or who loves using ehr but still it's the backbone it's the central data repository where you get all the data you have to type in all the data the data has to be precise and then that is where you everything starts it's a very boring thing it's been in this use for maybe more than a decade uh, but still uh, it is very important uh, second would be i would say data exchange where uh, this legacy it system is there in the hospital uh, people are not even aware but it kind of runs it right uh, all the technology uh, applications are deployed on top of it so it's in the background and it's not something people are excited about and then third is i believe there is lot of uh, dullness it has developed over a period of time regarding the variables people are not very excited about it nowadays but because you that's one of the possible source to get that very precise data from that patient at a minute minute level data it can be a big game changer with ai and deep learning computing capacity increasing you can tailor a solution based on this data stream as well uh over a period of time it has lost its sheen uh, people are not that excited anymore everyone is talking about ai ml but then how do you do how do you run your ai ml on what data you have to get it from some sensors right so variables is another another i think is sort of it's not i won't call it boring but it's not that exciting anymore i believe well, it's turning from a overhyped field into a field where people have to work through many generations of improvements to turn the promise of the field into something that's truly useful because the vision of variables is still remarkable which is that we can have early warning of possible impending problems and when the warning is raised raised early enough and if it's reliable then we can have much simpler interventions much lower cost much less distress much less inconvenience that will avoid us developing diabetes or heart problems rather than allowing these conditions to grow in our bodies until it's too late so that vision of wearables i think is still there it's just proving to be a lot harder to make it work than expected it's like it's taken a lot longer for google glass or now as we said in previous discussion apple vision pro to fulfill its potential there's a lot of devil in the details and i think it's the same with electronic health records and i know that medical doctors dislike having to write them all up because of course it's a distraction from concentrating on the patient but i think there may be a hope that we will have ai assistants listening in background and there already are 
for these Zoom calls, there are a number of assistants which make quite a good job of writing notes in real time of the relevant parts of discussion. Not just a long string of this was said, this was said, this was said, but even it puts some structure into it. So I have a hope that the writing of EHRs, which is very important so that information doesn't get lost, doesn't get forgotten, doesn't get misremembered, which is often the case. People come away from a consultation thinking, oh, the doctor told me to do this. And the doctor thinks, oh, I told the patient to do that. And they're quite different. So the more it can be streamlined with AI, I think in due course this will come. But making that a reality requires, as you've said, a lot of engineering skills, but a lot of wise regulatory influence as well. Regulators can see there's a gap Regulators can encourage people to work together. Regulators can incentivize in some cases and penalize in other cases. And we can get the true benefits of these long hoped for breakthroughs sooner rather than later. Yeah, just to add to that, uh, all those new exciting technologies will be built on top of it. So you, if you do not have an EHR, you can't run your AI algorithms. If you do not have variables, you will not have that data point. So they might not be the most exciting in current time, but then they are the necessity kind of a foundation on which more exciting stuff can be built. And it may be we'll get there by these wearables having less ambitious goals to start off with. So instead of trying to be a comprehensive monitor of health, it will just focus on one thing, blood sugar content, for example, which is of great interest to pre-diabetics or diabetics. And there are such systems around. So if you can focus, and this is one of the messages, of course, of the great uh, analysis of Jeffrey Moore, crossing the chasm, you only can uh, survive in that long, painful chasm between technological enthusiasm and actual mainstream adoption if you focus on trying to identify one particular use case and solve that use case sufficiently well. Then you can springboard from there onto a wider deployment. So wearables, I think, will break through are those that aren't trying to do everything, aren't trying to boil the ocean, but are able to give some specific advice and assistance. Yeah. So just to, just wanted to add on that. So as David mentioned, wearables have to be precise because healthcare is very unique. You don't want to give someone, uh, let's say, blood pressure advice who's diabetic and doesn't have it. Uh, hypertension right so it has to be precise so one possible solution can be although it would be packed uh, with all the sensors but you just activate one thing that is relevant to that particular user so for example if uh, as david mentioned a blood sugar level uh, measurement might be much more relevant for a pre-diabetic or a person who's having tough time managing his or her diabetes which be much more relevant than giving him oxygen level which might not be relevant for that particular patient so it has to be precise. Healthcare is a very precise, private, and a very uh, intimate thing. So the wearables have to be very much be in that domain where it is the user should feel that it's serving its purpose because user is using that wearable not to get some data. User is using that wearable to solve a pain point, to get some value out of it. I mean, we've talked about these rapid pace of uh, technological uh, advancements and uh in general in in the in the healthcare system um, how do you think that healthcare systems i mean uh, and medical professionals actually stay updated uh, and ensure continuous learning to efficiently 
and effectively uh, leverage new technologies because I mean this is also one of the major uh, points uh, of of these new technological advancements people have to use them but they also have to know how to use them yeah so that's another thing uh, we have we are seeing the things are changing much where uh, so first uh, so first we have to go the way that they get uh, updated for whatever specialty they are in there are conferences there are called cmes continued medical education so definitely that's the first expected uh, platform that they, that can be leveraged so in these cmes you can talk about interesting cases you can talk about the updates in their in their own specialties so for example if there are oncologists coming for their own cmes talk about what's happening in lung cancer and ai imaging that will peak uh, that will also find the enthusiast out of that crowd and maybe they might you know want to learn more about it so that's one place they can get updated second is you have to celebrate those brave hearts who were early adopters of technology so that people know about it and they just do not are they just they just they are just not the early adopters but there is a crowd of people who are adopting it and they move to the next level of adoption of innovation so you have to celebrate those innovations you have to uh, encourage those innovations third could be at a institution level where they are practicing there has to be some dedicated incentive where these clinicians are busy right they are just trying to get done with their work and if you ask them to do something on top of it of course there will there will be a lot of resistance and there would be a lot of hesitation because they do not have bandwidth I, uh, most of the physicians are very busy in their clinical world so there has to be some sort of incentive there has to be some sort of provision provided by their own institution level so it's very tailored so let's say there is a community health center in rural part of a country there you might just give them one day or let's say half of a friday like friday after lunch to work on their innovation to brainstorm about the ideas that can solve the problems at his or her community health center you have to provide that kind of breathing space for that innovation to grow and thrive and last would be uh, sort of uh, maybe grant level where where these nih nhs kind of organizations they kind of set the tone where the healthcare will evolve so if they want to have more adoption of innovation in healthcare system they have to provide grants they have to provide some incentives they have to provide reimbursement and all those kind of incentive in that direction so that there is a feeling that there is something happening i and there is sort of in a manilian lingo fomo fear of missing out uh, there is some sort of that element as well so that people are enthusiastic so it's not like we would only push people to learn innovation but it should come as a full process where it's attracting those people to you know learn more about it to become more curious to think about more use cases because engineers will never be able to find use cases as good as the clinician would be because the clinician is dealing with those kind of patients on a day to day basis he or she gets that patient the problem in the system they have been doing day in day out they will be the best person to identify the pain point they will be the best person to connect that pain point with a identified solution or repurposing of that solution that's already there in the ecosystem so the clinician has to become more vocal the clinician has to become much more pivotal to push this transition and transformation uh, to make it a much more you know 
acceptable in the clinical domain. So the clinician should no longer be thinking that things will remain the same. We already have the right kinds of treatments. The clinician should be much more open to technology, data, AI, should be able to address lots more problems. So they should be thinking in the back of their mind, oh, here's a problem. I wonder if my colleagues who know more about technology, more about AI can make a difference. So the clinicians, as you say, will be pooling solutions. And I think the grant authorities, the grant making authorities, they need to encourage the initial stages of innovation, but they also need to encourage the hard work to convert the innovative idea into something that works in practice. Because it's, again, the chasm that many innovative ideas often fail inside because it takes a lot of hard engineering, a hard manipulation of processes to make it work. And that needs to be supported as well, in my view. And just to add one more point, I think uh, in innovation, failure should be an option. Uh, I'm not saying with the patient's life was anything sensitive, but at least in their uh, innovation trials, the failure should not be something they should be ashamed of but should be something people should use as an opportunity to learn, to learn beyond that point. So at least we are moving slightly beyond that point where we started. Even a failure is a movement in that direction. So there should be an acceptance to a failure where the person who is trying, their efforts are celebrated and a lot of learnings are disseminated among their peers by that process. So there should be, uh, you know, the clinicians are generally uh, very skeptical and they are very, you know, in their mind, they're very guarantee oriented or very safe uh, approach oriented. And innovation, you cannot function like that. Innovation is about trying 100 things and only five or six things will work. But that five or six things that will work will change it dramatically. Uh, so that kind of mindset has to be kind of encouraged. And those people in clinical fraternity who have that kind of mindset should be, you know, celebrated in a way that that kind of mindset percolates across the community. One thing you said there, I think, is particularly important, which is to encourage the dissemination of reports of failures. People's instincts are often to be a bit embarrassed and to try and hide the whole thing and not mention their involvement. But on the contrary, if these failures are documented and shared, first of all, it will prevent other people needlessly repeating the same thing because the same apparently bright idea may come to lots of people. And there is evidence that in pharmaceutical industry, a lot of companies have actually re-trod, walked again along the same failure lines because the failures of previous companies were not properly documented. But even more than that, if somebody documents, here's what we had in mind, it didn't work, here's all the evidence, somebody else can look at it and say, you know what, I wonder if we were to change this aspect of the treatment, we could introduce uh, some other thing to deal with the side effect, then it might make a difference. So out of that failure, uh, an adaptation could be devised, which wouldn't be possible unless the information about the failure had been disseminated. That's again what needs to be encouraged by grant-making authorities, it needs to be encouraged by magazine publishers as well, that they shouldn't just be looking for breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough. It's, they should encourage people to say, well, you know, I tried to replicate these results and I couldn't replicate them. And I'm going to publish to say that I couldn't replicate them in case there's something more important lurking behind the surface here that we scientists, medical community need to need to get behind. So this change of attitude is very important. Uh, Rohit, do you have any final remarks for the future of healthcare and AI? 
Yeah, so uh, in my opinion is like I've always been a very much optimist by nature. In fact, my blood group is B positive. So I'm very optimistic like this uh, AI thing is going to be a very big game changer. Uh, healthcare has been kind of a laggard to accept technology and, and it has its own reasons. Like you have to be very safe and you cannot, uh, you know, compromise on safety and privacy. But then uh, this AI thing can be that technology that can disrupt healthcare in a big way. As the population of the world is aging, there, there is a movement of care towards home. You can, we cannot provide healthcare the way we have been providing for last centuries, right? There has to be a big change and the change is due. And I feel AI can be that enabler where we will be able to transcend that uh, centuries-old technology, uh, the centuries-old uh, tradition of providing medicine in, in a clinician's office where the clinician office can be at a snap of a finger or a touch of a glass screen. So we've talked about the importance of innovation in AI, the importance of innovation in data, but we've also emphasized that this innovation is not going to be successful unless there's also innovations in culture, innovations in what gets rewarded, innovations in what gets encouraged. And then we also made the point, very importantly, that another set of innovations is needed, which is those in regulatory environment, because the processes that were put in place to deal with previous medical regimes are often not the right ones to deal with new medical regimes and different treatments. So there's a bunch of innovations that are, need to be progressed in parallel, AI, data, culture, regulations. But one more needs to be emphasized, and Rohit raised it at the beginning, and I think it's worth highlighting it again at the end, which is financial innovation, which is we have to change the way in which people are rewarded for their interventions in healthcare. And so now we have, thankfully, the insurance companies or people who pay for medical treatments paying doctors for Zoom calls in a way that wasn't possible before. But that's only the start, I think, of the changes in financial systems that will make much better healthcare possible. We should be rewarding people for preventative interventions. We should be rewarding people for avoiding getting sick at all, rather than just paying people the more medical treatments they can provide to people who are already sick. And it's these financial innovations, I think, that may be key to truly getting the benefits from the other innovations we have in mind. And Rohit's laid out this very interestingly. I encourage people to read the articles he has written on the one. He has a great insight, a great way of communicating. And I look forward to hearing more about uh, your ideas and uh, vision, Rohit, in the months and years ahead. Thanks, thank, thank you, David, and thank you, Amir, for the great opportunity. And I really love this conversation. This is what we need, actually. We need to have these kind of conversations where we are talking about what are the possibilities and which direction we can take. We don't know if we, uh, what's the right direction, so we have to look for it. So as that happens in innovation, you have to try things and something will stick. Thank you for listening to the Delta Dialogue. This episode is brought to you by the UN, a tech community focused on artificial intelligence in healthcare, machine learning, and related disciplines. I am Amir Mustafa, and see you next time.